0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, and our week in IndyCar series, here presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, heading into the Long Beach Grand Prix, the wonderfully sponsored Acura Grand Prix at Long Beach, cannot wait, truly one of my absolute favorite events every year, it's not just because of IndyCar, it's because of everything, it's, IndyCar is a headliner, IMSA and their 100 minute race to close out Saturday. It is World Challenge that is there. It is the Stadium Super Trucks. There's also of late been a really cool vintage series of some sort chosen by Jim McHaleon and the group there that run the association that run the event in this year in honor of IMSA's 50th anniversary. They're doing a throwback to about a two-year period in the very early 90s where IMSA GTO cars competed. And, yeah, how's this? You know, I love me some IndyCar, and IndyCar has been the uh, foundation of my life for the majority of my life. I'll also say that when we go to Long Beach this weekend and see these 750-horsepower open-wheel rockets perform, and then even when we see the, I don't know, 650-ish horsepower IMSA cars perform, the brand-new Daytona Prototype Internationals and, and GTs and whatnot, just keep in mind that when the IMSA GTO cars from late 80s, mid-late 80s, very early 90s are on track, yeah, those are going to be the most powerful vehicles on track all weekend long, period, end of statement. 800 horsepower, 900 horsepower, pure insanity. And so the best and the most fun of these cars from this Wobegon IMSA GTO uh, point in time is they happen, many of them happen to use the same motors found in the IMSA GTP cars. So anyways, wrap all that together. Plus there's concerts going on. There's great food. And then there's also the racer party, which is invitation only, but I'll just mention it because it's something I look forward to. Saturday night, the 27th annual. Thursday night, we have the Road Racing Drivers Club event and that is honoring David Hobbs. Uh what this Wednesday I'm going down Wednesday morning going to meet up with uh, my friend Jim Busby, a great sports car entrant and capture a podcast with him. Then going to head over to All-American Racers and continue a film project that started late last year with Justin Gurney. Uh after that going to meet up with my friend Nick Hunziker, the artist who's just pretty amazing to do a little bit of recording there. So It's just a great week, great friends, great everything. So uh, definite whatever problems might be ailing you, Long Beach is certainly, for me at least, something that takes many of them away. I'm also thankful considering last year when I got hit with a nasty viral infection the weekend of Phoenix IndyCar. I actually ended up missing Long Beach. I think my left eye was swollen shut and I looked even more like an ogre or Bigfoot or something. So I was pretty much wiped out for the rest of April. So really stoked that very strange for me, having been to Long Beach for decades as a competitor and now also on the media side, weird to miss a year, but so happy that I am heading back. So for our guests today, we have the awesome, the amazing, the king of the beach. Al Unser, Jr. We spent a little over half an hour on the phone. uh, And then also we're going to close with, as we continue to bring our Cooper tires, drivers, team owners, and whatnot on the road to Indy, onto the podcast here, we close with reigning USF 2000 champion, Kyle Kirkwood, who is now competing in the Indy Pro 2000 series. And so caught up with him and yeah, young American doing big things, trying to continue to represent his country ably and i think that kid has the talent to go far and if there's rumors if there are rumors that are true he may actually already be part of one of the uh, engine manufacturers in indycar Maybe part of their kind of personal pipeline someone they want to see continue and move forward and be a part of their family so Assuming all that's true or even remotely true, I think we're going to be seeing big things out of Kyle in the future. As always, I've got a couple quick notes to get to you, and then we're going to get into our guests, and then we will close with me answering your questions. And once again, thank you to the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires for making our show possible. Had a couple folks ask if the live podcast I mentioned I was trying to put together at Long Beach is going to happen. Sadly, it is not. Uh, I might have aimed too high on this one. My friends, in trying to bring IndyCar and IMSA together in a combined podcast, uh, there was a lot of great effort, definitely. And so uh, no one's fault but my own probably for trying to do both together and a couple drivers from IndyCar, a couple drivers from IMSA and find a spot on the calendar that worked, just couldn't. So at least for what we're looking at right now, the next live podcast will most likely be the IMSA Mid-Ohio event, and if we can pull that one off, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. So stay tuned there, and then during the month of May, I'm working with our friends at Cooper Tires who will have their Cooper Tires stage on site within the grounds, and so we're going to work on how many we can do, when, where, how. I'll get all that to you here very, very soon Let's see, what else can we mention quickly? Our friends at Toronto Motorsports. They've got... (laughs) This one just kind of killed me. I loved it. Uh, Our friends at Toronto Motorsports, are you a fan of the Mayor of Hinchtown, dear listeners of the Marshall Pro Podcast? Well, they've produced a limited edition of James Hinchcliffe, uh, 112th and 164th scale models. Would you be thinking I'm referring to James Hinchcliffe in his... Glorious number five, Aero Schmidt Peterson Motorsports, Delar D W twelve Honda, featuring a twenty eighteen Universal Aero Kit. No, we're talking about actual scale models of Hinch himself, the man. Um, yeah, uh, only one hundred of these, I am told, have been made, and they feature all kinds of little minutia, like uh, the the anchors for his Hans device and the little xylon protective strip that goes on the visor and whatnot. Uh, so, yes, this, if you need a Hinch scale model in your life, either super tiny 164th, almost keychain size, it's uh, something probably the cat or dog might eat if you're not careful, or the full 112th, you know, kind of decent decent height. Um, they're there by visiting torontomotorsports.com. And, I mean, so if you need that, that's where you go to get it. There's only been 100 made unfortunately i believe and unlike barbie and ken dolls you i don't think you can undress the mayor and post uh inappropriate photos of him on instagram that right there i would pay almost anything to have because it would be an endless source of humor but again even if you can't unzip the uh the race suit he might be smooth in certain areas like ken who knows but uh, although i don't believe you can unzip and have a nude Hinch in 112 scale Uh, you can still probably have plenty of mischief at his expense with it and then if you're just a straight up fan well then this is perfect because you can get the scale model of the car you can get the kind of comparative giant size hinge standing next to it and if you're not um, Maybe it's like the movie Major League, and you treat it like Joe Boo, and it's either something to ward off uh, evil spirits, or maybe you do evil things to it, and uh, hoping that'll happen to him. So I don't know. I just love the idea of a 112th James Hinchcliffe. You can buy only, exclusively, at torontomotorsports.com, and there will only 100 of them. So in theory, get busy, because uh yeah i just again i can't wait to see what folks are going to come up with uh other than that we'll quickly mention that if you have not done so please check out our brand new com site the home for every episode we have ever posted we're coming up on our three-year anniversary in may so there's some good stuff there to have to enjoy to kill some time make work go by faster, your bike ride, whatever you're doing at the gym, who knows if you're uh, on a stakeout and you're just getting tired of listening to the guy next to you, at least what I perceive things to be in every kind of buddy cop movie, go ahead and pop in your earbuds, visit marshallpruitpodcast.com You can stream every episode we have ever posted 500 plus. And also if you have not done so, you can subscribe. So you do get every episode the moment it becomes available. All right. We're going to get going here with Al Unser Jr., followed by Kyle Kirkwood, and then I will come in and close the show, as I've been doing of late, with your Q&A, all brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Al Unser Jr., it's so awesome to have you back here on the Week in IndyCar Podcast. How are you coming out of a, I guess I would say a very interesting weekend for the Harding Steinbrenner racing team?
1: yeah we're we're doing okay you know uh thanks for having us on marshall it's it's always great to to chat with you you know we're we're uh, we had a challenging weekend at at barber uh this last weekend and uh but that's behind us now and now we're looking forward to uh to the Long Beach Grand Prix, and so we're, we'll be heading there uh, later on this week. Let's
0: get rocking and rolling. We have a bunch of great questions that have come in from our listeners, as we always do, and I will say, you know, let's go to one here. We've got a couple of Long Beach themes, as I mentioned before we started recording. There's rumor you've done well there. Uh, so I think I read on a place on the Internet, you might have actually won once or twice at Long Beach. Or six times, all kidding aside. Uh, So this year, among your, I mean, hell, brother, almost every time we go to Long Beach, it's an anniversary of a victory, one of your six victories there. 1994, though, if we look back, 25 years, you and that glorious Penske PC-23. What comes to mind about the 94 race? It might have been a little bit of a messy day for some drivers, but what comes to mind from what was your, what, fifth of six total wins?
1: Yeah, it was um, it was a great day. I mean, you know, uh, anytime you do well at Long Beach, it's 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 a great day. You know, it's our, our second most popular race on the, on the whole series, and always has been. And uh, you know, driving for Roger, it was it was my third race for him. Uh, you know, the beginning of the season in '94, I had just joined the team, and. You know, we were able to uh to win there, uh, for Roger and for Marlboro and all that kind of stuff. And it was uh it was just a good day. We had a great weekend, you know, we were quick all weekend long and, and really I was racing, you know, P T and, and uh and Emerson, you know, we, we kinda had the field covered and, and so uh you know, it was just uh it was one of those great days at Long Beach, and and we were able to to pull into Victory Circle.
0: You came home almost forty seconds ahead of Nigel Mansell, who was coming off his ninety three championship with Newman Haas. You're about forty five seconds or so up the road on that young punk Robbie Gordon. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> if we're looking at podiums in Victory Lane, Unser Jr., Mansell, and Gordon. That, that's Well, I don't know about Nigel, but that sounds like a pretty fun party that night, at least.
1: It was, it was good. Like I said, anytime you do well at Long Beach, it's a, it's a great day. And, and, uh, you know, I just remembered racing against Paul, really Paul Tracy. He was, he was the one that, uh, that was the quickest. And I think he, he had issues during the day. He spun or something and, and, uh, and so on. So
0: well i believe he started on pole but yeah part of a magical year for you that rolled on in 94 let's go to matt odland interesting here we've got a couple of questions on this theme start off with matt who says al what is it like coaching young drivers and he asks what do you look for in their performances both on track and within the team to work with
1: well really what i look forward what i look for is uh, is if I if I see something that, that I feel that I can help uh, whether it be uh, you know talking to his engineer or him driving on the track and if I suggest something that if he goes out and does it right away or if he just ignores me and stays doing what he's doing and uh, you know so far I've been I've been really fortunate in the aspect that, that I've had, I've had really good drivers that have listened to me and they've gone out and, and, and tried whatever I suggested, whatever that is. And, and as long as I see them try it, sometimes it doesn't work, you know, for them because all of us have different driving styles and that sort of thing. And so, but as long as they try, uh, to learn, uh, then that's really Really, the, the the main quality that that I try to look for.
0: Neil Joseph asks, "What are your thoughts about this young crazy kid named Colton Herta who has turned IndyCar on in its head so early in his rookie campaign?"
1: I think Herta is just a natural talent. You know, um, honestly, he reminds me of me. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean he uh, he's been racing go kart. Since he was very, very young, uh, like I did, uh, he has a, a father that uh, that was very successful in IndyCar racing, like I had, and so you know, there's a lot of those those pressures that come along with that. You know, the of, you know his dad had success, and so. You know, is he going to be able to have that same kind of success and and follow the footsteps and all that kind of stuff? And, and so, uh, you know, that, that in itself, it's own pressure. And, and so, uh, you know, all the situations, Colton has, has just absorbed it. He's very calm. He's very methodical. He goes out there and just gets the job done and and, uh, and is very quiet about it, you know. And, and so, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's been a real joy to work with.
0: Jordan Darwin asks, Al, how much of your winning knowledge of Long Beach can be translated to today's different layout and cars?
1: Well, I've, I've kind of been thinking about that, you know, um, not much, to be honest. Uh, the, the, the cars are are pretty different, you know. Yes, they're still single-seat open-wheel cars and, and they weigh the same as when I drove them, but the downforce levels are, are a lot different. Uh, the reliability of the cars are a lot different. And so the way you drive the cars are a lot different. And so, um, you know, half of the track is completely different uh, than when I raced it, but then there are, you know, the, the, the hairpin and, and that sort of thing is still the same. And, and so, um, you know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons about the whole thing, but, but really, um, uh, the, the formula is, is enough different that, uh, that they have to drive the race and attack the race uh, in a different way than, than what, what I did when I was driving. And so, and, and, what that difference is, their brakes, today's brakes are way better than what we had. Uh, the tire technology is way better today than what we had. And so these guys go out today and they drive 10 tenths the whole entire race. And, uh, and in, in my day, we had to protect the brakes, you know? I mean, if you, if you went out there and drove it as hard as you possibly could at the beginning of the race, you wouldn't have any brakes at the end of the race. And, and so you really had to uh, kind of like have a maintenance program as the race went on and, and uh, to have a, a car that you could race at the end of the race. And, and same way with the tire technology – you know the the tires that we that, that I raced with, you know they would tend to fall off a lot more during a a, a, a stint of, of, of fuel load than the Firestones do today. The Firestones last a lot longer than than what we had, and so uh, you just have to. It's just a different formula, and you just have to attack it in a different way. And uh, but when it comes down to it, it's still pure racing and you got to go out there and you got to pass the guy in front of you in order to win the race
0: so. and I'll, I'll just throw this in jordan and it's it's very much just reality al has not raced an indy car at long beach in a really long time but he has <laughs> done but but you've done so many races on street courses and been to enough now outside the car as a driver coach. And I can say this from my own experience as a, whether it's an race engineer also as a driver coach for many years, understanding the type of circuit you're going to is the most valuable part of what you can offer in coaching. If there are also some real insider bits, Hey, from my time here, Provided nothing's changed, they haven't repaved it or whatever in turn three, you really need to look at this little patch because that'll get you some extra grip. but for the most part Al's experience even though different era different types of cars, he knows street circuits, road courses, ovals, and can go to any of these tracks with any driver and why while he might not be able to say in 2019 in your de Dw twelve with a United universal Aero kit on it and Firestones and a Chevy engine, this is the specific thing that you need. He can surely tell you that, hey, in turn two, you need to slow your rolling speed on entry. Otherwise, the way that the contact patch changes uh, on the type of surface there is on corner exit, you're going to be prone to just slide off the damn road. And that's just a universal truism that isn't specific to him knowing today's exact car. It's just damn good knowledge from decades behind the wheel. That's going to be true in an Indy car, a sports car, a shopping cart, a skateboard. (laughs) So, uh, that institutional knowledge, that's the kind of stuff that is so valuable.
1: Well, well said Marshall. Yeah.
0: I should think about talking and writing for a living. Almost. I'm going to ponder that. Let's go to uh, a really great question. I thought that came in here from Paul Cooper says, Al, one of the things that I respect about you the most has been your ability to bounce back from the many challenges life has brought you. And he says, can you speak to this aspect of your personality?
1: Oh gosh. Um, you know, I guess in, in racing, um, there's, there's just, there's so much adversity that, that, that you face in racing. And I, and I guess with my personality and what I did for a living, you know, I, I raced over 300 IndyCar races and I only won 34 of them, mm. you know, and so, you know, when you, when you look at that kind of analogy, I, I look at it and I go, well, this is a losing business, mm. <laughs> you know, and so, uh, you have to work hard at it in racing. And, and, and then, you know, with, with with my life's challenges, my, my, uh, fight with alcohol and so on, um, you know, it's been, it's been a a real challenge and you have to work at it every day, just like I had to work at, at, at winning races every single day. And, And, and so, um, you know, there, there's a lot of correlation there, but, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, to overcome adversity is is something that that we all have to do every single day. My daughter Cody, who's in a wheelchair, you know, she's she's the strongest person that I know. Mm. You know, and and you know, her challenges uh, every single day are way more than than what my challenges were. And and you know, you you kind of go. To, to the same thing, you know, if, if life was a bed of roses, you know, we, we'd all be, we'd all be happy, but you know, life isn't life is, is there's good days and there's bad days and, and you have to try to keep an even keel with the goods and with the bads, And, and, uh, and so, you know, um, hopefully we've, we've been able to, to, to do that every day and, 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 you know, make life better let
0: me ask or follow up with that al i know that looking at my life i have become toughened and hardened and found very deep inner resolve as a result of having gone through a lot of personal hardships when i was a toddler a little bit later in life but it was something where hard and bad situations made me or gave me the opportunity to either find that inner strength or just fall apart. I I might've fallen apart once or twice, but to get to that place where there was that inner strength, what was it like for you? Was this something that, you know, but flip side, some folks are just tough bastards come out of the womb and they're like, I'm taking on the world and I'm going to win. Just curious for you. What was this like for you learned or uh, just nature?
1: Oh man, you're getting deep on me, Marshall. Hey, um, new,
0: talk about racing is the easy stuff, brother. <laughs> this is the, these are the things we really want to know about who you are as a man.
1: Yeah, I'm still learning that. To be yeah. honest, you know, um, I don't know. You know, I've I've uh, over the years, quite honestly, I've I've uh, God is a way bigger part of my life today than uh, than he ever was in my twenties and thirties and. Hey. and uh, and so, uh, my goal today is to be as spiritually fit as I possibly can. And, uh, and what I mean by that is going to church, listening to the word and, uh, and trying to apply that in, in my life. And, and, uh, you know, uh, quite honestly, Jesus has helped me through a lot of things.
0: Well, the congregation says amen, my friend. I uh, that, that makes me quite happy to hear. Let's go to Eric Franklin, a little bit of a similar theme. He says, Al, congratulations on finishing your first 5K. He says, drivers today seem to be much more focused on overall fitness compared to maybe when you came up. And he asks, what role did physical training play in your driving days?
1: Well, in in my driving days, um, I was, you know, being, being born in the family that I was born into and, and talking with my dad, you know, uh, my dad's thought process was if the race car is not working, you could be Hercules and you're still going to lose the race. Mm. And so what my dad's thought process was, was, was really concentrate on the car and get the car handling as best you can and live a, a, a good, clean life and, you know, you'll, you'll be successful. Well, I really feel that in the 90s that uh, Michael Schumacher is the one who turned everything on its head yep. with his phys- physical fitness program. And I think all the drivers in the whole world took notice of that. And, uh, and really started working out, you know, and, 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 you know, I, I really feel that, uh, you know, what Tiger Woods did to golf, Michael Schumacher did to, to auto racing, all of auto racing. And so, uh, you know, as you get more physically fit and this is what I found it, you know, cause I started working out at the end of my career yeah and not at the beginning and, and middle, you know, I, I started doing it at the end of my career. And what I found that when the car's not working, okay, you're not going to win the race, but if you're physically fit, then, you know, you can, you can take a 10th place car and finish fifth.
0: You aren't the reason and, for falling back.
1: Right, right. Well, not so much that it's it's, when, when the car's not working, you you have to work double hard. Sure. And so, you know, so you, when, when you're driving a first place car, it's easy to drive virtually, you know, you, you're not, you're not really having to fight the car. Well, in 10th, you're having to fight the car tremendously. And, and so, um, the more physically fit you are, the better, the better you're going to do, and and, and so um, that's the same way on 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 injuries. You know, if if you get hurt in the car, the the, 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 the better physically fit you are, the sooner you're going to be able to come back from those injuries, and 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 so on. And so, um, you know, it, it's just the the way of times. I mean, you know, uh, Bjorn Borg did it in the tennis world you know and 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 back in the eighties and so uh you know it i it, it it's a shame it took me most of my career to to get in the gym, but uh today I feel so much better because I do work out and I do go to the gym and and although i'm fifty six years old, I feel like I'm in better shape now than I was when I was 35, 36 years old
0: so well you're going to get another amen there for someone who's 48 and has lost about 35 pounds of a thousand pounds that I need to lose so far a little bit late in life. And I haven't always been a fat bastard, but, um, as someone who's on a similar, Hey, I need to be healthier and that's going to make me live longer and everything's going to be awesome kind of trip. Uh, really yeah. happy to yep. hear that uh, you are doing the same, my friend. Let's get to, yeah. uh, uh,
1: it was, it was cool. I enjoyed the 5k. I had, uh, Liz, my, my PR girl, she was, she was out there with me and she was the one going, come on Al, come on Al. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was great. I, I truly enjoyed it.
0: Well, let's get to a handful of questions here to close our visit this time heading into long beach. This comes in from our pal, Ryan Terpstra, who says, Al, what's the favorite, your favorite track that IndyCar no longer visits and maybe one you'd love to see us go back to.
1: Oh man, um, that's a great question. I haven't really thought about that. Um, I would, I would really love to see IndyCar go to Surfers Paradise no. in Australia. <laughs> that's what i have We we had so much fun there, and uh, the fans truly, truly loved the indie cars racing on the streets of, of, surfers. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd really love to see us go back there.
0: I'm, I'm just waiting to book the flights, my man. I cannot, wait. <laughs> cannot <laughs> wait. Here's a great one. And I'm so glad that Howard Bennett sent this in. He says, Al, going back to 1984, 1985, he said Roy Winkleman had team Lotus design and build him the, uh, one-off, <laughs> staggeringly beautiful Lotus 96 T cart IndyCar, which sadly never ran or even left the UK. He says, is it urban myth or fact that Roy's new team was to be built around you and you were to have driven this amazing new Lotus IndyCar?
1: It is fact. Roy Winkleman did in fact sign with me. I signed with him. I was over at the Lotus, uh, uh, factory and, Bethel, and so yeah. on. Uh, saw a wooden mock up of the car. Uh, everything was going forward and I was super excited about being able to develop, uh, such an iconic brand. And, uh, and unfortunately the, the funding didn't come through and, uh, and everything fell through right at the last minute. And, but on the other side of the coin, I signed with Doug Shearson Mm -hmm. and drove the Domino's pizza car and came within one point of winning the championship in 1985. And so, you know, I ended up having one of my most successful years ever.
0: There's really a breakout there the the dominoes noid i believe was part of the uh, promotions back then trying to steal people's pizzas and whatnot
1: yeah that was a fun time yeah, yeah it was a fun time yeah
0: all right let's go to a uh, last couple here jordan darwin says al uh is there one race more than others that fans want to talk to you about connect with you over uh and was there a, a maybe a favorite race that you think back to from your career
1: well, I always enjoy talking about Indianapolis. You know, the Indy 500 is what I live for. And still to this day, it is the race of all races. And so, uh, you know, uh, I felt 89 was uh, was the best drive I ever drove at Indianapolis, you know, uh, although I didn't win that day. Um it, uh, it was my best drive of, of, of my, all of the races that, that I raced at Indy.
0: Well, we're going to have to do a deeper, we're, we're going to have to do a separate podcast here in the next couple of weeks about that 89 event, because not only was it phenomenal to observe from you in terms of driving performance, but as I've told you before, as someone who was screaming and shouting like a madman over the contact uh, that lost the race, I was expecting you and thought you would have been in your you know full, full right mind to jump out and throw your helmet at MO or just vent, and you didn't. And again, it just taught me so much about you and your character where here you are trying to win the race. It means the most to you and your family. It doesn't happen, and you would have had a green light to act as ugly as you wanted, but instead you uh, went the route of class. So again, I'm hoping we can find some time here to just talk about the 30th anniversary of that. All right. One or two more here to close. All right. There's two couple fun ones here. This comes in from Todd Hutchins who says, Al, how did the Indy wall get to the Unser racing museum in Albuquerque? He says that museum is a gem, amazing history of the Unser family to see all the helmets, racing suits, a trophy case. It's nothing but Amazing not to mention all the different types of vehicles that are on display, Uh, who needs to see balloons when there's a racing museum in town. So any idea how that section of wall got to the museum?
1: Well, uh, absolutely. And it was a gift from Tony George Mm. is how that got there. They were replacing the wall at Indy, and uh, so they were – they were cutting the wall down and the fencing and putting up an entire new wall and new fencing and all that. And, and, uh, and all I did over dinner one night, I I said, uh, could I have a chunk of that wall? And and Tony (laughs) goes, sure. (laughs) And so the next day we took a, a can of spray paint and marked off, he goes, what section do you want? You know? And, and, uh, And I went to turn three where I had hit, you know, in, in 89 and and I go, okay, from here to here. And we got 80 feet of it and the fencing, a USAC timing stand, observer stand, you know? And so, uh, it, it was a gift from Tony and, you know, I, I just couldn't thank him enough for, for letting me have such a, uh, piece of nostalgia, you know, that, that, uh, that the Indy 500 is all about, and so uh, that's how we got it. And and you know, he's right about the museum. That my dad got his his, his heart and soul into that museum, and it turned out really well. And and you know, we as the family were super proud of what Dad did did accomplish with that.
0: You know, I found one other great one here to throw at you before the closing one. I think you're going to enjoy. This comes in from our friend Steve on Twitter. He says, what did you learn by racing both sprint cars and the ASA stock cars that proved valuable in your IndyCar career?
1: Well, I only ran one ASA stock car race, and that was at Milwaukee. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't finish it. Uh, We put it on the pole. And then lasted, I don't know, seven to 10 laps or something and the and the engine let go. But, uh, but, um, mainly the sprint car, the sprint car really taught me how to be aggressive without running into anybody, <laughs> you know, because when you start running into people in a sprint car, you just end up on your head yeah. and you don't finish and, and all that stuff. So, but you have to be super aggressive because the races are just so short which is why they call them sprint cars and and so it's a sprint race and and so uh you know it it, it really it taught me how to run wheel to wheel with people without without uh touching them
0: All right final question goes to our pal Justin Ford who asks, how was the SVRA during the V Rock Vintage Race of Champions battle at Road Atlanta Go with our friend Willie T. Ribs?
1: <laughs> we had a great time down there. Uh, the V Rock is something that's new that Tony Tony Perella is, is, uh, has come up with. You know, it started out as the Pro Am there at Indianapolis, and, yep. and he wants to do more of that and so the v rock is is the vintage race of champions is is what it's about and and so uh there's going to be three events this year i believe and there's a points thing and and uh and that sort of stuff and uh, what can i say I, I enjoy running uh the vintage races especially with the car that the 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 car that i'm with that i share is peter clute yep 69, 69 Corvette, and and it's in Pete as a super driver. He's super competitive. The car is in great, great shape, and and so uh, we get out there and have fun. I mean, I, we we ran that first race at Road Atlanta, and I hadn't been around Road Atlanta since nineteen eighty two. I ran a Can Am race there. People, people, was it was say. funny. People were coming up, and they go, "Well." You, you, is it the same track? I go, I don't know. I don't remember the first <laughs> one, you know. <laughs> it's too long ago. I mean, come on. And so, uh, but honestly, by, uh, I don't know, midway through the race, I, I kind of found where where I was at. But Mike Skinner ended up being too much for me, and I, I ended up running second.
0: Well, I love the fact that you're enjoying this and continue enjoying being part of Tony Perella's awesome world of vintage racing. I also love the fact that you and Willie T just seem to be having a ball, enjoying one another's company, getting to race together. I don't know, man, uh, just from the outside, someone who's known you for a while really seems like you are on a, in a incredible place in your life, personally, professionally, still getting to drive, getting to coach, pass down knowledge, doing a lot of, you know, important things for yourself through faith, through fitness. I, I love, absolutely love this version of you.
1: Well, thanks Marshall. I mean, we, we are having a, a great time right now and Willie's been such a long time friend of mine and, and we we're getting out there and we're having it up and, you know, getting in the race car and, uh, no matter what kind of car it is, um, uh, you know, I I get to get in there and I get to think nothing about racing but but racing and and uh, and it's just been a a true joy and and yeah I mean getting to work with Colton, uh you know what what Mike Harding has has allowed me to do bringing me into the the Harding Steinbrenner team as a as a consultant you know all the way around I'm 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 talking to mechanics. I'm virtually doing everything I used to do except drive the car. And I'm really good with that because, you know, uh, today's IndyCar. I mean, these guys are athletes. You gotta, you gotta go out there and, and run that thing hard. And, and, uh, you know, those days in the IndyCar level are behind me. And, and so just to be a part of it and share it with these young kids. Uh, has been a, just a, a true blessing and a dream come true.
0: Well, I'll look forward to seeing you here in a couple days. A little circuit that has your name on it. And thanks, as always, for making some time for us here.
1: You got it. No worries. Thanks.
0: Kyle Kirkwood, awesome to have you on here in the Week in IndyCar. First visit here. Got to meet you a couple years ago when you had been nominated and named to Jeremy Shaw's amazing Team USA Scholarship. And then super happy to not only know, not not as if there's ever a question, Kyle, that Jeremy has a great eye, but seeing you absolutely mop the floor with everybody last year on the way to winning the USF 2000 title and now move on up to the Indy Pro 2000 series. How you doing?
2: Uh, I'm doing good. Thank, thank you for having me. It's uh, It's a true pleasure, honestly.
0: Looking at how things went for you on the opening weekend, obviously coming off, I know you had a podium there, uh, sitting fifth in the standings, Parker Thompson obviously got off to a a great start in the Indy Pro 2000 regard, but give us a little thought about where you're at mindset coming into this year, this team that you've signed with as well, obviously that advancement prize from Mazda uh, doing good things for you, but before we get into some of the questions that folks have sent in for you, let's just get caught up on your thoughts on how the uh, number 28 RP Motorsports entry, with you in it, uh, things are going to start off the year.
2: Yeah, you know, the, the team, RP Motorsports, they have a really good reputation over in Europe, and coming into this past year, they, they did a phenomenal job. So I think that was obviously... What uh, made me make my decision is because I knew the, how good they were last year, and um, coming into this year, they persuaded me that they were going to put an even bigger effort, and they're bringing some more people over from from Italy to try and make the program as good as possible. Um, them being Italians, they've got a good relationship with TADIS. so learning the car quickly was uh, was really good. And what what really I think surprised everyone last year was how good they were how good they were at ovals and um or at least the last oval i I actually talked to them they they had no set of data or anything going into lucas oil and they were still i believe quicker than the cape um yeah they were actually and as you know the capes are a phenomenal team so always uh, it was was really it was really amazing and and yeah so the, the ovals was uh was was, uh, I'm sure, his hardest thing for anybody coming over from Europe, and they did an awesome job uh, taking to that.
0: So looking at career arc-wise, one of the things I'd love to talk about here first is how you and your Team USA scholarship uh, partner there, Oliver Askew, have come up, done really impressive things, Oliver as well, in USF 2000. You've seen him make the move to Indy Lights After a brief stay in uh, what we now call Pro 2000, you now uh, following behind with the championship as well in USF 2000 and moving along. How are things going from that standpoint? Knowing the two of you are really young, rising American stars, uh, seems like you've achieved very similar success. Oliver has been able to make that jump to lights a little bit sooner. Is that sitting okay with you? You feel like you are on the right timeline for where you should be at?
2: Uh, I do. I do, yeah. Because Alder is, uh, is almost two years older than me. I think it's a year and 10 months older. And we, we've grown up together. It's uh, it's really amazing that we've made it this far together and are still really close friends because I started in karting when I was uh, four, almost five years old. And he started when he was uh, six, six or seven. And uh, both of us from Jupiter, Florida, are actually, he lives in Tequesta, which is five minutes north of Jupiter. Um, we both started in karting at Palm Beach International Raceway, which at the time was Moroso. So it's it's really cool that, that we've gone along the same route, very similar path. We both ran with Ocala Grand Prix in karting, Burrell Art as factory drivers, and with the Capes and USF 2000 and Team USA Scholarship. It, it's, it all, it's all just clicked for, for both of us, and I think that we're on the same path. I'm probably a year behind um, compared to him, but... Um, two years younger than him. So I don't see that being an issue. And quite honestly, it keeps our relationship good because if if we were competing against each other, which we have in the past, um, <laughs> we're not. We're, of course, we're not going to be as close friends as uh, we would be if we're trying to help each other out um, go, going along our own paths.
0: Last question for you before we dive into those that were sent in on social media, Kyle. Looking at, again, just coming out of this first weekend of action in St. Pete, uh, you, uh, ahead of you in points and points in fourth, good old Stingray Rob, one of the best names in motor racing, Daniel Frost, a rookie in front of him, Rasmus Lind sitting there in second, Parker Thompson, again, leading with all the success he had. So yay, get the season started. Been waiting all off season to get it going. Here you go. Fantastic. Here we are the first week of March and you sit on your butt for about two months, waiting for the next round to get going. Got to wait till May to continue uh, the racing, at least. Tell us about that. What is that like as a young driver who just wants to get to the top, win Indy 500s, be an IndyCar champion, dominate the world? Then you got this hellacious, it's almost a summer break uh, right after the first round. What do you do? What's your day like? How do you manage this long pause? And is it maddening?
2: Uh, well, first off, it's if you if you had a weekend like I did at St. Petersburg where I crashed out in the first race and um, I was able to make a little bit of a comeback on on the next day and finish finish second. but um, just having that in the back of my mind after having such a phenomenal year last year with 20, 28 out of 32 wins between different three different series. And then coming into that weekend and crashing out in the very first race of season, <laughs> it, it doesn't sit very well for two months straight. You kind of want to get back in the car and get back into things and try and win a couple of races. But now for, for me, I know a lot of drivers, they're testing, they're going, especially for the oval, um, for the first oval race, Lucas oil raceway park. Um, just after the first round, people are starting to do testing now. And my team is in Italy. So I'd, don't really have um, capabilities of going out and doing testing or anything like that in, in the Indy Pro 2000 car. But uh, for me, it's, it's more just uh, I've been home a lot, actually, a lot more than I'm used to. And I've been doing a lot of driver coaching as well with uh, some guys and Porsche Porsche cars out of local tracks and karting stuff here and there with uh, Scott Speed's father, Mike Speed. And uh, that's kind of what it can. Consists of with uh, with the racing side, but otherwise I'm huge. Actually, none of my family comes from a background of racing at all. Um, that that's two two of the downsides that I have is that I don't have a last name, and two I don't have much funding to keep uh, to keep going without winning races. So for for me, um, my whole family has a background. Of soccer and fishing and other little sports but none of them racing so for me i spend time with my family going fishing or um maybe hunting here and there and um and yeah so that that's kind of what uh, consisted of for the past couple months and of course the generic thing training going into the coming weekend but um from an outlook from other people that they don't really see that's kind of what i do
0: so we're going to start a new hashtag, adopt a race car driver, because clearly we need to get <laughs> Kyle into a racing family. Not as if your family's—we'll add. How's this? We're going to add a new family that's just all about racing. So, <laughs> all right, got a got a handful of great questions that have come in for you here, which always makes me happy with a driver on the road to Indy to know that folks are paying attention and want to connect with you. So let's go with Chimerical Chris. I kind of need the background on that name, Chris, unless your first name is chimerical and your last name is Chris. And I've just made a mockery of pretending that it isn't. Uh, he says, Kyle, what are some of the differences in handling setup options between the USF 2000 car and the new Indy pro 2000 cars you're driving this year?
2: Um, well, I can't really, I can tell you what my set of differences are, but I'm not, um, just, for for reasons, I don't need other drivers uh, listening in and hearing what what we're doing. But for the most part, the the Indy Pro 2000 car, it uh, it's allowed to have stiffer springs, so we utilize that. And um, the differential is is the biggest um, biggest difference difference between the two cars, I believe, because the USF 2000 just has a, a standard uh, gearbox and. And this, uh, sorry, um, differential, standard differential. And this car, we've got, I think, seven seven different settings on the differential. So I've come to learn pretty quickly that that makes a huge difference in the car. And um, it's, the whole car is kind of tuned around that. But otherwise, the feeling of the car and um, the aero balance and everything like that is pretty similar. It's just, as you'll hear from many people, it's just a lot more of everything, which is the tires, He added uh, about 100 horsepower. I'm not sure how much more downforce, but I know it's a lot. Um, And there's, uh, like I said, the differential is is another thing that you can change, which is a huge component to any race car.
0: And that's something that I believe we might have even touched on in last week's episode about differential changes and what the diff can do to modify the handling characteristics of the car. Actually, Ryan Hunter-Ray Helped answer that for a listener, and I love the fact that here, not just waiting to get to the top step of the road to Indian Indy Lights, but actually in the the middle tier, you are now able to get in, and play with, and modify, and learn this aspect of vehicle dynamics because it will absolutely be a big part of what you are doing when you do get to lights. When you get to, I should say, IndyCar in particular, it's a big area where. If you haven't had a chance to do much of it coming up, well, you're going to have to learn on the fly in IndyCar. So another really awesome aspect of the road to Indy and just training drivers, not just to go quickly, but to build that engineering side of your resume so that you and your future race engineers will actually be able to really drill down into the finer aspects of making the car do what you want to do. All right, Kyle, let's go to Dan Gallagher, who says, Kyle, who is the one current competitor that you would like to do a helmet swap with on the expectation you will one day competing with him or her, uh, for the next decade or so in the sport.
2: Oh, that's a, that's a hard question there. A helmet swap. Um, man, I've never, I've never even thought about that to be, to be quite honest. I really like the way my helmet is now.
0: But see, that's but. actually a fairly common thing in IndyCar where, uh, You'll have drivers, obviously they're friends, but uh, you'll have drivers that will do helmet swaps. I've heard one story, and I won't mention the IndyCar driver, but they've they've earned a bit of a a crappy reputation of doing helmet swaps, but with non-race-used helmets. So almost to the point where you think they might have had a handful of them just painted up and maybe the cheapest model possible so that when they're asked, another driver asks to do a helmet swap, instead of it being something that was raced, used, and has some sort of competition sentimental value, now it's something that has only ever been uh, seen by the painter and then saved for a future, kind of cheapen out a little bit on a helmet swap. But, yeah, it's not uncommon in IndyCars, cars, so you might need to think about that. If there's anyone today where, in theory, you might rock up to the Indy 500 and, uh, you know, wear their helmet for a day is a bit of a fun throwback, and they wear yours.
2: Yeah. Um, no, I've, I've heard of it before, but I've never actually put thought into it, actually swapping helmets with another driver. And if I think if I had to choose anyone's, um, I'm a fan of, of both the D-Force drivers' helmets, and that's most useful. De La Vara and Corey Anders, mm. um, but uh, I, I don't know I don't know where their future or where their future aspirations aspirations are, um, if they're focused on going towards IndyCar or anything like that. But I, I am a fan of their helmets and I think switching with one of them would actually be pretty good.
0: Let's go to Michael Goodyear, who sends in two great questions. He says I know Kyle's a big fan of Formula One. And I was just wondering which team or driver you might have grown up supporting. And was there a particular driver who got you into the series? And as uh, you've had a chance to maybe meet any of those F1 heroes over your career so far.
2: Yeah. You know, Ruben Barrichello is, is one is one to think of that instantly comes to my mind. And he's somebody who you'll see around the paddock everywhere now here in the U S uh, whether it's carding USF 2000, uh, the F4 US, US Championship. Uh, even, I think he's he was around a couple of the F3 races last year. And he's a phenomenal guy, really. He's, he's really down to earth. And I've known him for uh, for a few years now because when I was karting back with, uh, with Oliver Askew and on um, Ocala Grand Prix, uh, we had a lot of drivers and both his son, Fefo uh, Barrichello and, and Dudu Barrichello, Eduardo Barrichello. Dudo's and Fefo are their um, their nicknames, and you know that he's someone that kind of uh, mentored me a little bit and and helped, uh, especially with my driving. I used to train with him a little bit when when, uh, when his kids raced with Ocala Grand Prix, and um, I remember watching them, uh, how, however many years ago it was now when he was with Ferrari and uh, racing with Michael Schumacher. So that was that was a pretty big deal to have met him and seen him come up to or see him as I'm coming up to the ranks um, with his children
0: of the many things I love about Rubens and this is just something that continues to blow me away is I got to know him when he came over and did his IndyCar season in 2012 and have maintained a you know pretty warm relationship since then but just haven't gotten to see him that often but I'll be in the paddock, and if he sees me, he'll come over and say hello. And that's something you'd expect from someone that you still see on a regular basis, but just in someone that I might see once a year, maybe twice if I'm lucky. I still think of him as, that's Ruben's frickin' Barrichello. You know, he he and I might have a friendly relationship, but this is the all-time Iron Man of Formula One and this and that. And you go, God, you just need to get better better friends and people, you know, because if you're thinking of coming up to me, that just tells me we're going to step you up a little bit there, pal. But anyways, all kidding aside, it just speaks to who he is. (laughs) You, you, while he has this amazing history and CV, none of that is worn or carried with him. And I just love the fact that if he, you know, trusts you, knows you, feels comfortable with you, uh, he treats you like a part of the family or no different than you would anyone else that's definitely not always the case with drivers who've seen as much as he has and accomplished as much as he has. So it's great to hear that for you, not his son, not a family member, but someone who's still young and coming up in the sport, but familiar with the Barrichello family, that he extends that same kind of care and support to you. So that's pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. And I th- I think he's like that for everybody too, that, that I've seen. He never, uh, he never, turns any fans down. He always is uh, very welcoming, shakes everybody's hand. And uh, he's a really nice guy. You'd never, if you didn't know who he was, you'd never guess that he was um, um, raced as many races as he was. Well, I don't, I don't remember how many championships he did. I think it was like 18 different years or so, something like that in Formula One. So it's crazy to see somebody that's raced as much as him in, in the highest category of racing and uh, just be that nice to, to everyone who, who uh, comes up to them.
0: I'm sure that's also rubbed off on you, even though you are very, <laughs> very early into your career of just realizing that it's a serious thing you're doing, you have goals and aspirations, but if that kid's asking for an autograph, I realize you're still a kid, but if that kid younger than you is asking for an autograph or whatever, absolutely make that time and make that memory because that's certainly been a part of big part of Ruben's career as well. Let's go to uh, another question here from Michael, who's asking about American drivers and any baggage. He says, I wonder if Kyle's ever dealt with anyone underestimating his talents when driving abroad because he hails from the good old U.S. of A. Michael says, obviously, uh, Kyle's demonstrated his immense ability behind the wheel. But does he feel that he maybe had to work harder to earn the respect of international drivers while being an American?
2: You know that's that's uh, something that I think every American driver faces. That there isn't there definitely isn't the same respect um, from the European side to the Americans that we have for them, um, or it's not mutual at all. So it's whenever I raced over there and and car, or I did a few World Championship karting events over there. Um, the respect that I received wasn't um, wasn't what you would expect it to be. Um, which which is a bit unfortunate, but I think I think to me racing back and forth between both uh, both over in Europe, uh, I raced Portugal, Italy, Spain, and um, the in the UK. So it's and bo- both the US and over there, I think it's a similar talent, talent level. For instance, like Jamie Caroline came over and ran USF two thousand last year. And he was the the British F4 championship champion from the previous year, and he uh, he did he did decent, but he wasn't he wasn't uh, I don't think he was driving like me or a few other drivers. So it, it shows that I think the the Americans here can compete with the with the European drivers as well. And um, obviously, the, for the most part, Europe has a little bit more heart in racing, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that we don't as uh as drivers here in the
0: u.s we also do that a bit when we have european drivers come over and tackle ovals for the first time something that we considered you consider uniquely ours i know that in europe road racing is considered uniquely theirs by by some whatever percentage and we do the same thing and are always pleasantly surprised when someone like say a michael aloshan who had never seen an oval before coming to indycar and turns out to be uh, that's actually, uh, despite a, a career of road racing and having achieved some very impressive things, say the, the world series by Renault, for example, actually over here, road course stuff, street course stuff, wasn't necessarily his finest output. The guy was a beast on ovals, a pure monster. So out of nowhere, you know, I think there's an instant like, all right, well, we'll see how the guy from Russia or Italy or whomever handles it, you get Fernando Alonso as well uh tackling his very first at the indy 500 and was phenomenal so uh, always interesting and i think respect is given here once we see that folks pick up something that might not have been at least what we would perceive uh, an area where they should succeed right away Uh, let's see let's go to one or two more, and then we are going to let you get back to training or whatever else it is <laughs> you might be doing to fill your day. Uh, let All right, another bit of a comparison question. Our pal Jerry Siddeth says, Kyle, what are some of the similarities and differences in the driving performance between the U.S.? And I always get the name wrong, but the SECA Pro Racing F3 cars and the US F2000 cars that you drove.
2: So... The, the driving, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Those the driving differences. Differences or, or
0: similarities between the F3 and the 2-liter cars.
2: You know, there's, uh, the, F, the F3 America's car um, is much, much heavier. It's actually heavier than an Indy Lights car. So you, uh, you can just imagine how much lazier it is compared to an Indy Pro 2000 car or USF 2000 car. Because the USF2000, I believe the minimum weight is twelve fifty, and the Indy Pro2000 is thirteen fifty. So, in the uh, the F3 cars, I think it was sixteen eighty, something like that. So it was it was a lot of weight going around the track, and at Circuit of the Americas with the really tight corners, it was nearly impossible to ro- rotate the car. So, mm. and I think the wheelbase was another eight inches longer as well. So it it's, it's a completely different animal because I know when I went back and forth I had a little bit of an issue because I raced I believe uh, it was Pittsburgh and then I went to the last round of USF 2000 at Portland Oregon and instantly I was off the pace in, in USF 2000 I was like there's I, feel, I just feel off and that's because the USF 2000 obviously stops a lot quicker because of the weight and there's less horsepower and you can carry a lot more speed through the corner. So I was, I was all thrown off. So there's huge differences between them both. And, um, and considering I didn't really have that much competition in the F3 uh, America's championship, it uh, made me a little bit numb. I, I think if, if I'm being honest,
0: that's an interesting observation. I was looking Last weekend, my friend Shay Holbrook, she was nominated to one of the W Series uh, race seats. And I believe that the chassis that has been uh, identified for the W Series that they're using is definitely a faster... I don't know where it would fall, Kyle, in the Indy Lights, Indy Pro 2000. I mean, I haven't seen it in front of me. But just looking at some of the quoted numbers and the tire width and, you know, general stuff... It looks like it should be kind of indie Pro 2000 level, if not maybe a little bit faster. Uh, but it was interesting to see Shay, who I think it was coming straight from, or more or less straight from, doing the W Series stuff in a car that was you know, somewhat quick, although she doesn't have a real open-wheel background. And then last weekend, uh, jumped into the F3 Series at Barber and was just, Nowhere, absolutely way off the pace. So, I haven't had a chance to speak with her or to get any background. But, just on the topic of it may say F3 or whatever number letter it might have in the series, it might conjure images of oh, it's open wheel, it must be super quick. Nah, you know, don't underestimate the fact that going from a heavier car with not a lot of power to a car that might not have crazy power but is lighter. Uh, they're not all the same things, and it can certainly take a little while to get your head around what that specific vehicle needs to extract performance.
2: Yeah, definitely. And the differences, like we talked about, the differences between the cars are pretty astronomical. And as you're talking about, Shay Holder, i actually met her at the PRI show. And um from what it seems, she seems to be a pretty good driver. I'm not sure what, what exactly the differences are between the F3 car here and the car that they're running in the W series. But uh, I imagine it can't be massively different, but, but yeah, like you said, open wheel cars, they're, they're all different. It's going from, going from an Indy pro 2000 car to an Indy lights car is massively different. And the tires are all different. The differential completely different. Chassis arrow, everything. It's, it's it's a big difference, and I think um, I, that falls in the same category as as uh, going between the F three and Indy Pro two thousand because uh, the the F three car, like we said, it's much heavier, longer. Um, I think less tire on it, even though it has the horsepower and it's a turbo um, Honda two liter. It's uh, it's not as quick as I think uh, everyone would expect it to be, and I think that that's for the same. It, that's the same over. Over in Europe now with the new uh, Formula 3 car that they just came out with for this season because it's much heavier. I don't believe it's much quicker than the uh, previous F3 car with another, I think, 200 something horsepower. So it's crazy, really. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. Well, let's close, my man, with a final question. And this one I'm very interested to hear. This comes in from Daniel Schoolmeester who says, Kyle, judging by the fact that you're on the road to Indy, We assume your primary goal is getting to IndyCar. Uh, However, are there any secondary series, IMSA, for example, that you might like to try and get involved with? And I'm always pushing young drivers like yourself to say, hey, of course we want to see you drinking the milk at Indianapolis and all these wonderful things. Don't necessarily sleep on trying to build that second or maybe even third career lane where you can be earning additional money and just making sure that at 45 years old when you're done with open wheel, you don't go, oh, maybe I should get to know some people in sports cars.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. I kind of made that that uh, initial start with IMSA this past year at the uh, Michelin Encore where myself and Roman DeAngelis, who just, I think, won back-to-back races yep. in the, port of the GT3 Cup in, at, at um, Arbor. We both ran and won, won the race uh, by... By good ways too. Sure we did. Kept checking out, we we led the race for for a very long time. So I made that initial start, and I really liked it. You know, I was I wasn't expecting the car the car to actually feel as good as it did. You uh, when, when when you come from a Formula car and you go into a sports car, you, most people's thoughts is uh, it's going to be oh it's going to be a heavier, lazier, slower car. But actually, when I got in it, I, for me going through turn one at Sebring. Was the fastest I've ever been in any car through, through turn one there at Sebring. So I, I really enjoyed it. I really like the endurance aspect of it because being consistent means everything. Um, and saving tires and fuel and all that stuff is is really cool. So I was uh, I was really intrigued by that. And I think if I can get behind the wheel of another LMP3 car like that, or even in some sports cars and GTD or even TCR, I would I would consider. I would, I would love to get into more sports car stuff because uh, I think I, I've got the background of open wheel, but I, I love all racing, really, and going around the track is, uh, is one of my favorite things to do, no matter if it's, uh, if it's a pit bike or a Formula One car. I, I can care less as long as I'm at the racetrack doing what I love.
0: <laughs> Music to my ear. Kyle Kirkwood, young American, on the come up, doing good things along with so many Really, really strong quality drivers coming up the road to Indy. Would love to see you in, would love to cover you in multiple paddocks. So thumbs up to the sports car angle. Look forward to seeing you here in the month of May, my man, and seeing how your season continues. And thanks for paying us a visit on the good old week in IndyCar. That is for sure.
2: Thank you so much for having me,
0: Marshall. And that was young American ace, Kyle Kirkwood calling in from Florida Odd that we have Oliver Askew kicking butt, being the man in Indy Lights from Florida and coming off of a great 2018 season. And I'm sure he wants to uh, match his pal and former Team USA teammate in winning Indy Pro 2000 this season at the same time that Oliver potentially wins Indy Lights. And the two of them graduate yet again. All right, let's get into the questions you sent in for me. We're going to start with... My friend in humor and smiles and just keeping things light, Tim Calabro, he says, Hey, if a team and driver has no Oval experience, uh, does someone like Dragon Speed go to Texas and make educated guesses or hire an experienced engineer or an experienced driver, maybe someone like Oriole Servia for the day, to make sure the baseline is safe for Ben Hanley to get some laps? He says, What are the IndyCar requirements for the test? Well, that's always a good thing, Tim, if you can. Uh it depends on the alliances formed by the team. Uh if you've got teammates in this example, and I, I think it's the reason you brought it up, with Dragon Speed being a single car team. Um yeah. I don't know as well if there are any experienced folks like a Servia who would willingly climb into the car unless they were a part of the review of the setup going on it and you know just having someone climb in i don't know if many folks would want to do that with a team that's never done an oval race at a very daunting place like texas which can eat cars very easily so my guess and i will see if i'm right or wrong because i'll ask elton here uh, after the test but my guess is this could be ben venturing out on his own and that's not completely abnormal Even for a driver and a team that's never done an oval, well, you kind of got to do it sometimes. Uh, What tends to happen is there's just a very serious and slow and gradual work up to speed initiative that says, hey, I know you might be lapping here. We'll just say 215 miles an hour. is what we're going to aim for eventually. If you get over 150 or 100 on your first 10 laps, 20 laps, you're going to be in trouble. Just truly work it up. Uh, very slow keep in mind that they will indeed go for rides in a rental car around the circuit getting coaching from uh, someone from indycar and maybe any advisors that they might bring along but yeah it's an interesting one here uh, in this instance we'll mention and i won't get into names but i did hear from a friend who may or may not have been contacted by dragon speed saying hey uh you know oval's um, could you be available for the month of May just as a support, as someone who can bring a veteran pair of eyes to help as we learn ourselves? That tells me that the team is thinking in the right direction and not trying to be too proud and show up and say, nope, we're doing it all ourselves. But, you know, knowing that Ben has passed IndyCar's test and, uh, I guess, uh, credentialing, format that they put in place Yeah, we're going to review you we're not just going to hand these out but we're actually going to do a a serious review of who you are what you've done before before we let you drive or race one of our cars knowing that ben hanley was indeed given the thumbs up to do that on road and street courses it's a measure of i guess some sort of comfort level and although ben has never (laughs) turned a foot much less a lap on an oval yeah i think that IndyCar series has seen, he's not going to be out there doing anything silly, hasn't really been overdriving, isn't a guy who we've seen throw the car off a bunch of times, if at all, I believe. So, you know, these are really good bones to work with, to develop from. And so, Tim, my guess is, I can't say whether they would have someone to climb into the car beforehand, but there's also really good help and support from both engine manufacturers when it comes to aero suggestions, general chassis info and setup so would not surprise me at all to learn that Chevy and Chevy Racing has been some sort of help in this department so that what uh what the team would use keep in mind Delara as well as someone that they could lean on uh, with many many laps they are turned with these cars I think there's going to be enough baseline setup info to draw from that should allow Ben or anybody to be not necessarily in a maybe poll winning place, but in something that would be competitive once you get up to speed. Uh, Let's see. Kyle Brown asks, would you rather wreck a Corvette at Detroit? That is referring to Mark Royce's infamous incident last year or roll a sweeper at Barber. I actually thought about this a little bit, Kyle, which might be a surprise. Um, I don't know what a sweeper costs. That's my concern here, because my first thing was cost. Um, Wrecking a car, I've done that once, maybe twice in a motor race back in the day when I was small and skinny and thought that I had talent. And it sucked, Uh, not only because I hurt myself and have a lifelong injury as a result, but uh, I couldn't afford to fix it. And it took quite some time with a broken car sitting doing nothing because it was just way too expensive to get that little Formula Ford back on track. Then I think about a Corvette, and what was it? Some sort of Grand Sports Stingray 5000 custom edition, you name it. It was some sort of really expensive, really fast Corvette that Mark Royce pitched into the wall there. So I know that if you're Mark, who's quadruple super executive uh you know you know people that could fix the car uh for a normal person yeah that that's more than a year's salary double a year's salary for plenty of folks that might be a tough one to swallow so my initial thought Kyle was oh I'd rather do the sweeper than the Corvette then I realized I actually don't know what one of those sweepers happens to cost is it 20 grand 30 40 it seems like it might might not be that cheap so maybe someone who knows can tell me it's purely about cost though it's, it's not about ego because me me being on a racetrack in a race car that's an embarrassment number one and then wrecking it would surprise no one so again on the personal front people are going to laugh either way uh it's purely an economics thing so if you know what uh something similar to the sweeper that got rolled uh trying to come down the hill out of turn two, let me know. That might actually help me uh, sharpen my answer here for good old Kyle Brown. Dan Arnold says, what can be done about poll sitters and leaders slowing down at the start and restarts than to get a jump on the field? It's dangerous, Dan says. Uh, I think he might be referring to the situation we had with Ed Jones going from 21st to 4th, jumping out of line. Um, at Barber, we had what Felix Rosenquist, either hitting someone from behind or getting hit. Um, I mean, it is racing's dangerous, Dan, this probably is the least dangerous of all because they're going so slow by comparison. So if I'm thinking of dangers in motor racing, this ain't one of them, but to your point in terms of something, maybe being a little more organized, I mean, IndyCar reserves the right, has the right, and at any point in time can penalize someone for jumping a start, uh, jumping on the brakes and packing people up and then taking off. I mean, it's at their discretion to say, hey, foul, that is not the way it works, and then invite someone to take a trip down pit lane like they did with Ed Jones, who <laughs> improved, what, uh, 16 positions, something like that, uh, 17 I don't know, a whole bunch of, of positions by just kinda of doing his own thing. And, you know, it's one of the many reasons we love ourselves. So Matt Jones. Uh let's go to Bodon Clementisky. Tinsky? I'm sorry, Bodon. I'm murdering your last name, but that's why folks call me the last name assassin. Uh he says if it's so important for pits to be closed during yellows on road and street courses, why does IndyCars Race Control casually break that rule? I think we in a race control know what the rule ought to be. Believe this is indeed in reference to what happened with the yellow that we had on Sunday at Barber and its extended duration. Uh now I couldn't see, you know, from every camera angle whether there was still a lingering safety vehicle, cleanup vehicle, sweeper, or whatever that was out there would just say that if by chance they were kind of sort of put back into position, it didn't bother me when I realized, thought I realized, if I'm accurate, that there was an understanding that how Circuit of the Americas went down with the timing of pit lane being closed, that hosing a couple of drivers who had yet to pit, Realize the caveat was we had Felix Rosenquist crashed on entry to pit lane. So you couldn't exactly have everyone diving into the pits while they're trying to get a car out of pit lane entry. But I think there might have been some recognition that, hey, there there was definitely a little bit of sour taste for some with how that race uh, shifted in terms of who won and and those who were disadvantaged. Maybe in this instance, we can not only uh, leave the pits open with uh this yellow here to make sure that everybody gets in and gets out and there's no real shuffling of competitive order but also the duration is what stood out to me was hmm there's also a question here as to whether this could become a fuel conservation race another thing that i haven't met many who say ah that's what i love i watch motor racing to see drivers go slow or slower than, uh, maximum just to get to the finish. So uh, again, there's a lot of assumptions going on here, The leaving it open to make sure that everyone could get in and get out before it was closed. I'd say big thumbs up. I'm cool with that. Uh, the letting the yellow appear to run on a little bit longer than maybe it needed to be to make sure everyone had enough fuel th- so they could go super hard to the finish. I also thought that was a nice little touch. If indeed That is what Kyle Novak and his team decided to do. And if not, I know that I'm probably going to get a text here or an email from Kyle correcting me, which is awesome. That's way how this stuff is supposed to work. Let's go to Steve Hamilton who says, Hey Marshall, question for you. What does a track like Barber need a repave after only a few years? Yet a track like Road America in a cooler climate with true freeze and thaw every year does not need one. The Road America surface is over twenty years old if memory serves me right. You'd think northern tracks would need it more often. A couple quick things that come to mind, Steve. I don't know if barber has been repaved uh, since it originally opened. I know that there was a resurfacing, or let let me rephrase that, a grinding, uh, treating the existing surface. I don't know if actual new uh, tarmac has been put down. So if it has, then uh, I'm just happening to forget that great point on a place like road america the one main thing that comes to mind is as our friend michael cannon mentioned i believe in a uh, in this series in the weekend in IndyCar car presented by cooper tires and the justice brothers right after the circuit of the Americas spring training event it's that there's no such thing as quote track surface meaning one thing one actual material that every track is made from It's a choice. Each track says, hey, we want to have this amount of this material. We want that. We want rock. We want shells. We want you name it. Um, Each track has its own idea as to what would be best, the best composition of that track uh, surface that is laid down. Some uh, happen to wear very quickly. So despite their age, they might be in a warm climate. Who knows? But The track surface itself, we could almost think of like a Firestone alternate tire, a red, that might provide great grip for a very short amount of time and then uh, falls off. And you might think of other track surface choices like the primaries that tend to last a lot longer. So some are going to wear faster. Some are going to last longer longer. Uh, I don't know if that is the answer as to why Barber is in one situation and Road America is in the other, but there might be something to it or there or thereabouts. Uh, Let's go to Dennis Zosek, who says, any further updates on the long-term future of the Long Beach Grand Prix? doesn't seem like the Angels, the uh, Major League Baseball team, are likely to move there, but it did sound like the mayor is determined to develop that area around the convention center. I'd like to hear the local government give a show of support for the race, no matter what is built, uh, but I haven't heard anything about that yet, have I. Have not, Dennis, when I did speak with the Grand Prix at Long Beach uh, Association President Jim McHaleen right after this item came out, spurred by the new mayor of Long Beach, there seems to be uh, an acknowledgement that the parking lot area where we happened to park the Indy cars, where we happen to bring the IMSA series into that whole general area there is essentially the largest undeveloped area in downtown Long Beach. If you're a mayor, new mayor looking for economic development, I think that would always stand out as a, ooh, what could we do there? How could we make money? What could we bring in? What could we put up? And so something like the uh, the Angels baseball team, I'm sure, stood out as an immediate thing. Then you hear from some who live there, some of the locals, and go, man, traffic is already <laughs> murderous here. And if you've been to Long Beach, if you've been up and down, whether it's Shoreline or any of the uh, affiliated streets, uh, I, 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 I don't even know. I don't know how you would do it and expect to get folks in and out uh you might if you got there you might not get home before the next game started uh there's just not a lot of really you know five six lane wide throughways coming in or out it's a lot of two lanes three lanes maybe a lot of city surface streets um i'm thinking here in the bay area Uh, both the Candlestick Park that I grew up going to in uh, South San Francisco for the San Francisco Giants, it is truly right off of the highway. I mean, the ingress and egress, brilliant, super simple. Even the new AT&T Park is super close, not as close as Candlestick, but super close to a major uh, throughway with a highway there, and there's lots of other ways to get in uh, to be there. It's also not a big kind of drive-your-car-in-and-park type place. Um, So anyways, I just can't think, knowing how congested uh, downtown Long Beach happens to be, Dennis, yeah, I don't know how they would actually fit it in without it just clogging the place's heart. And yeah, so I think the bigger question, and I don't have an answer to this, but I think the bigger question is, depending on how long the new mayor is in office, is this something that is going to be viewed as a real jewel that needs something? Got to put something there. If this is something that the mayor believes, then I fear that yes, there's something go- that's going to fill that space that could indeed make the Grand Prix. It could jeopardize the Grand Prix, but again, we will have to see what is held as true value uh, there in what they do or don't decide is in the best interest. Is it, bringing in businesses and putting up high-rises? Is it condominiums, or is it just a recognition that, hey, you know what? We are world-famous for our Grand Prix. It has a very solid economic impact. Maybe we need to continue this tradition, Uh, obviously, and pretty silly. But, yeah, my vote is the latter option. Let's go to Tom Anderson. who says, Marshall, I'm curious about the comments made during barber qualifying by Townsend Bell and Paul Tracy about Jack Harvey's commitment to his craft by losing 24 pounds. My question is what is IndyCar's weight rule? Does the team have to add ballast to the car to offset any weight loss of the driver in order to keep things equal? Start with the last question. First. Yes, Tom, there is a minimum weight. There's actually a policy that's been in place for a couple of years now, a little bit fun and or funny, which impacts my world and our world on the media side. And that is, IndyCar says after the first practice session every driver must make an appearance at the, uh, the the tech trailer stand on the scale and be weighed so within 15 minutes of the end of free practice 1 every driver must be there under the tent and if not they get fined I remember the exact amount of whether it's money or minutes taken off of the next practice session but it's just something that <laughs> Uh, while I'm forgetting what the exact penalty is, uh, drivers will get out of the car. And for those of us who are wanting to get quotes, insights, feedback, and initial read on things, Hey, what is track surface? What's it like? You know, maybe there was a change who knows, but look, it's a first real opportunity to get a feel for what just happened. And that may indeed alter how we, you know, talk about and write about and discuss the rest of the event. There's a lot of tension in just about every case. And it's sometimes it's with the driver. It's more often than not with the engineer uh, or a team manager, or even a PR person saying, Hey, they got to get over to get weighed. And I'm looking at my watch that I don't wear, but just roll with me on this one. And it's like, okay, so the session ended At half past, they've climbed out of the car. They've spoken with their engineer. It's now uh, six minutes into post-session. That means there's nine minutes to get there. I can see where they got to go. It's right over there. Okay, I could probably ask a 90-second question. And again, they've still got five, six, seven minutes to get there, hop on their scooter. They could walk. They could roll and roll themselves there and make it... But they're still just this big. Oh my gosh, you got to get there, got to get weighed, cannot get fined, cannot get penalized. And that all comes back to this uh, central point, Tom of IndyCar wants to see drivers wait uh, right after that first session to make any adjustments because going into the season, they will weigh the drivers and say, okay, I don't know, Joseph Newgarden, you weigh 175 pounds. And I just made that up. But, uh, you weigh 175 great that's your quote base weight and if he either gains a pound loses a pound whatever it is uh when we are talking saint pete coda you name it uh, they are weighing them and working against that number to and then tell the team all right uh your driver's down two pounds from what we uh, had him to start the season and we'll be looking for you to add two pounds of ballast so Uh, it's kind of a fluctuating thing like that, uh, tends to work that way though. And it's, it's actually, I don't know, it's pretty straightforward, but yes, there is a min standard minimum weight. And obviously with drivers being of various weights and sizes, uh, IndyCar looks to equalize that through ballast and what they say, okay, this is uh, the number you need to make sure we have achieved parity with someone like Jack realizing that, Hey, you know, uh, I could be, uh, I could be a little bit smaller. You might wonder why, you know, if there's this minimum weight, uh, that must be hit and you can use ballast. Well, in theory, couldn't the team just run 24 fewer pounds of ballast. So maybe there'd be very little ballast in Jack's car, but say a lot more in a Takuma Sato or uh, Zach Veach. True. They could absolutely do that. Jack could say, eh, pff, no big deal. Just play with the ballast to get it right. There's some performance stuff to consider here. Uh, not only is it less mass, jack to manage in the cockpit so that's when you think about the really fast corners also the super high speed to almost nothing uh, braking zones that's just less of him to get thrown around in the car to get squeezed into the belts easier for him to manage less of himself that he has to nourish that needs either liquids or energy etc so that's just the basic side there's the other aspect too, and I remembered learning this. It hadn't really occurred to me. Keep in mind, I wasn't always the smartest mechanic when I was younger. But there was one race team that I worked for. This was in a, a smaller sports car series, where the driver was six foot six, uh, just a, a big old man of a man. He wasn't really heavy, heavy, but at six foot six, you know, he's definitely going to have a lot of mass from the waist up definitely in comparison to any of his competitors. And I just remember hearing him talk about one of the teams that he drove for, uh, before hours, he said, yeah, my engineer saw me the first time, uh, first time he saw me, uh, his init- his immediate response was we need to put the car back on the setup pad because I need to make some changes to accommodate for a di- very different center of gravity Uh, than i was ever anticipating and so if you think about in very general terms very again most basic you want to get the weight in a car as low down as possible uh it just helps from in every capacity every handling capacity rotating braking acceleration low good high bad and if you think in super general terms If you have more mass sticking straight up in the car, well, that's a bigger lever helping to rock it left, right, forwards, backwards. Could be taking more weight off of a tire or front tires or adding more, disrupting the the balance and harmony by having this tall weight, uh, basically like a big, tall lever that you can jerk the chassis around with. And so, with this driver, again, in particular, uh, that engineer said, Hey, Uh, I need to go back, I need to go back onto the setup pad because you being this big old tall person with this weight, uh, so much weight up high that I wasn't expecting, I need to go back to work on the chassis itself. Jack is not a super tall guy or any of that, but there are certainly uh, some performance benefits to Jack being 24 pounds lighter and also in theory getting his center of gravity lower than it was before by hopefully having... Less upper body mass and just less mass overall. So really impressive that he did that. Um, clearly, maybe he was eating a little bit better than he should have. Not like I'm one to speak, but yeah, there's uh, there's some performance stuff to to be done here that can only help the car. Might not change the minimum weight that the uh, the Meyer Shank Racing number sixty Honda happens to be competing at, but the driver in the car being lighter can certainly help it to perform. Uh, closer to its potential next question is from nick Dela who says can imsa run the long beach grand prix race under the lights on saturday night well i'm sure they could but they don't because the grand prix nick puts on concerts uh, pretty much right after that stuff is done the bubba burger grand prix is finished so yeah i don't uh i don't foresee that being a thing uh, it would be a surprise me if it was Uh, I'll go to Delaney Calhoun. Hello, Delaney Calhoun. I apologize. I think this might be the first time you're sending in a question, Delaney, and if so, thanks for listening in. says, what would you think about seeing each team's damper provider on the entry list like we see with the engine provider? It would be a lot more interesting info than Delara slash Firestone, exclamation point. All right, I got to raise my hand here, Delaney. I was kind of thinking of doing that at the beginning of the season i think i wrote a piece about uh, every driver and engineering combo uh, engineer combo and was thinking of adding in which damper provider uh, each of those drivers slash teams had i chose not to though and this is maybe the answer to the question i chose not to because there is almost no such thing as a quote damper provider and or solution Now, of course, you go, well, what are you talking about? Well, there are three main providers that I can think of right now, that being Olean's, that being Dynamic, which is owned by Multimatic, and then Penske Racing Shocks. Those are the three where if we're just looking at the damper bodies, those are probably the most common you're going to come across, but the internals tend to be so heavily modified individualistic individual everything machined made um it's almost a case of the shell is just not a representation of what's inside so from a ed carpenter racing to a dale coin racing to a on down the list basically every team might have the vendor of choice in terms of what they start with but it's not an off-the-shelf thing. It's it's super rare when you have a true, hey, I just got these shocks from this vendor, and I just put them on the car, and we used them. It, it might start out that way for some teams, but effectively, since dampers are the biggest area of performance uh, differentiation, the real value comes in saying, hey, I like this architecture with the whatever, Oleans, but boy, on the insides, I'm going to do this and that different, everything by and large is going to be my own idea. So just a little bit of a misnomer in terms of, yeah, we could say who's using what, but I think I mentioned this in Robin Miller's upcoming mailbag for the week. We have the Penske Racing Shocks, company that sells uh, and or leases their product those are completely different than what team penske uses they actually have their own super private never see it made out of magnesium made lighter than feathers just unobtainium and that team's just been among the best forever when it comes to damping there's nothing in common although those are quote penske dampers they are not the penske racing shocks that someone could buy off the shelf and so even the, even what is called penske there are two versions of that uh there are hybrids where folks really like the way that a coney has worked in a certain capacity and they will not necessarily be able to jam that into a dynamic or an leans or a penske but they will try and model uh, something that they like from that internal that they might have used in the past so anyways delaney it's just uh, i don't know there's nothing stopping uh, me from doing that though so maybe when i get some time uh, i'll try and jot down the list of who uses what but again just keep in mind that these are so heavily modified that yeah it's kind of a damper ven- vendor in name only almost uh, all right we're getting down to our last three for me uh but the penultimate goes to Steve, new owner, and I hope I didn't murder your last name, but if so, please tell me how to not murderize that in the future, Steve. He asks, very critical question, how did WrestleMania compare this year and this coming after uh, last year, finishing up the what was the final Phoenix IndyCar race, then jumped on a plane the next morning, Sunday morning, uh, flew out to Louisiana and went to the Superdome with my lady and saw our very first wrestlemania live that was amazing uh just that we actually spoke about that last night while watching wrestlemania from uh on the wwe network from metlife stadium and again we weren't there so we're having to just use what we saw on television versus what we done seen with our eyes but It wasn't bad. Some of the matches were awesome. I was so happy to see Becky Lynch uh, take home both titles. That was amazing. There was someone definitely cutting onions in the room when Kofi uh, took the belt off of Daniel Bryan. I mean, there was a bunch of very popular results uh, that would, I think, make a lot of people just really happy. Not exactly sure about Kurt Angle losing his farewell match. um, But... uh, Lots of really good individual matches that I thought were a lot of fun and and struck a lot of correct chords spectacle though might have been missing just a little bit, uh, at least sitting inside last year in the superdome um, Wow, that was something to behold the colors, the lights, the everything it felt grand, at least watching last night. Mm, I don't know if it got all the way there, but most of you probably didn't tune in wanting to hear MP on his weekend IndyCar talk about WrestleMania, but too bad. It's one of the things that I enjoy and it amuses me and makes my brain happy. So there you go. And thanks for asking, Steve. We're going to wrap up here with Ed Joris. Ed, thank you for sending in questions all the time. He says, hey, am I the only one who would have wanted the restart at lap 61 or 62, the way teams would have faced a choice between all-out conservation versus dash and splash? It seems like the restart at 64 was timed so that everyone could make it all the way to the end on fuel. Seemed a bit forced to me. Covered off that a little bit in the beginning, Ed. Uh, But, yeah, I think I've been consistent in saying over many years I'm not a huge rules guy. And that doesn't mean I don't like rules and don't think they should be enforced, but I'm not a fan of rules just being adhered to because dang it, it's a rule no matter what if it ruins the show, if it detracts from things, don't matter, it doesn't matter. It was written down therefore the rules are why we are here. There are some folks, especially in sports car, who sports car racing fans who 100% live and die by the rules and freak out a little bit if rules are not adhered to perfectly. I'm just not that guy and I don't think rules just be abandoned for no particular reason, but I don't know if I want to have folks talking about a race uh and having, "Hey, okay, why did they do this? Why didn't they do that? I'm confused." Rather than, oh, well, okay, so yeah, maybe they bent the rules a little bit or, uh, you know, swallowed the whistle on uh, maybe pushing out that restart a few laps to make sure that it could go all out to the end with no uh, major dash and splash, as you mentioned. I'm okay with that. Trying to think of the bigger picture here uh, where we're trying to put on a good show trying to get more folks to care, trying to make sure that we have racing (laughs) in years to come. You know, these are real questions, real concerns. And so I'm not saying that all the big picture concerns should therefore trump uh, rules and make us forget them. I'd say this one didn't seem super egregious provided uh, there was that flexibility to go green earlier. So Again, my mindset, which I'm sure is very different from many other mindsets uh, from fans and such. Yeah, I, I didn't have an issue here. The last question that you sent in, Ed, was the one that I really wanted to dive into. He said, reading rumors of one of the potential new OEMs wanting a hybrid IndyCar formula. Would you, hashtag me personally, my favorite, implement a hybrid system on ovals if that was the way to get more OEMs? I wouldn't draw a line at ovals, Ed. Uh, the the interest in hybridization among potential new manufacturers, I've heard similar. Um, this is the thing. I have heard the opposite from the current manufacturers. The current manufacturers, I think, have been very straightforward in saying we don't want them. We're concerned about costs. The reason I chose this as the last item, This isn't really a soapbox. It's just a restating of things. And I feel the need to continue to restate things. I hope IndyCar is going to head in in a smarter direction on this when we get to the new engine formula. At present, there is no plan for a hybrid component, a spec one, for example. Do I think that could change before we get to 2021 get into 2022 and such we get this new engine formula i think there's a possibility uh and i i I hope so reason being this is i there hasn't been a lot for me to critique truly critique hey IndyCar, boy did you get that one wrong um they've been pretty sharp for a while now especially with Jay fry in charge this is the one where they have missed the boat uh I, i say this as someone who Tends to be the guy who is covering and explaining to you, bringing to you the technical side of the sport, not just open wheel, but sports cars as well. And I would hate for IndyCar to go into a brand new engine formula that's meant to last five, six years. Who knows? I mean, this current one was only supposed to last, what, three, four, five years? Here we are. We're coming up on, uh, we're going to be going into the 10th year uh, in the final year of this formula. Uh, or ninth year, I should say, uh, before we get there, but just forever. Um, I would hate to see IndyCar bake itself into a all-motor, brand-new engine formula, something that is truly just, here's a power plant, it is internal combustion engine, end of statement. That would be woefully short-sighted. And I don't know if IndyCar's upper brass fully grasps how much, the international automotive sector is changing, how quickly it is changing. I don't recall if I mentioned this on the Week in IndyCar here. I believe I mentioned it on the Week in Sports Cars uh, podcast that I do. Fascinating conversation with my pal Alan McNish a couple of weeks ago at Sebring. He is obviously a team manager for Audi's Formula E program, brand ambassador on the automotive side. Now he's you know, a team principal looking after uh, their championship-winning Formula E effort. And he mentioned at the recent Geneva Auto Show, uh, effectively, you know, really the world leader of auto shows and demonstrations of new products, thoughts, and technologies. He mentioned that every single one of the vehicles on Audi's stand at the Geneva Auto Show was either full electric or hybrid. And he said, it wasn't unique to us. You walked down and looked at the display from this manufacturer and that manufacturer, not little boutique ones. But like real whoa, they've been around for a long time, and effectively everything they're putting out to show the world about who they are and where they're going, it has some sort of one hundred percent, fifty percent, pick a percent, but it's got some form of hybridization included. To think we're a couple year, we're still a couple years out from a brand new engine formula, and that would not include a hybrid. I just, I cannot see how IndyCar would still allow that to happen and have to believe there is time for some form of intervention. Now, knowing that they want to make 900 to 1,000 horsepower with the internal combustion side, I'd love to see it. That'd be amazing. I hope that all of that happens. I'd just say that IndyCar would be wise to... Think about where IMSA is determined to take its next-generation DPIs, the uh, DPI 2.0, as they're uh, referring to it, in 2022. So very similar timeline. Uh, They are looking to that next-generation prototype. Same thing, manufacturer-based cars, just like we have Chevy and Honda. They have Cadillac, part of the Chevy uh, General Motors family. They have Acura, obviously, Honda's uh, luxury Offshoot. So they've got two of IndyCar's brands there, effectively. They've also have Mazda. Nissan is there, not so much as a standalone manufacturer. They're actually hired to provide stuff, but half of IMSS DPI manufacturers right now are calling for and wanting to have a not too expensive spec hybrid system that will be utilized starting in twenty twenty two. And it is because these manufacturers and some more that are coming uh, are saying, hey, (laughs) we want to have a budget to race. Our bean counters are telling us, yeah, if you think you're going to go racing with our name on it in the future without a hybrid, without some sort of electrification, without having something our marketing team can say, hey, we're not just pumping stuff into the ozone. We're we're not just killing trees and killing the environment. I'm exaggerating, but if you think we're gonna go racing years from now and not have a hybrid solution, you've lost your mind. So if you want to be there, make sure it's got a hybrid. And so speaking with IMSA president Scott Atherton a year ago at Daytona, I said, hey, where's this at? You know, I know that in the beginning Uh, I was hearing a lot of the manufacturers in the initial DPI 2.0 conversation said, nope, no hybrid, way too expensive, fear of cost, fear of lots of things. And he said, yeah, actually, that's changing pretty rapidly. And uh, I'm hearing the opposite now. Um, Those same folks might not be too excited about it, but internally they're getting pressure saying, look, you want a budget for motor racing? We're not just going to give you money to uh, to do this internal combustion only thing, you better have an electric option. So knowing that IMSA is headed there, I think IndyCar would be wise to look at the same thing. Look, is it a 75 horsepower boost? 100 maybe? It doesn't have to be huge. doesn't have to be crazy. Uh, I would say you could, I don't want to say get away with a, a small, uh, almost token hybrid system, but whatever it is, I think IndyCar must realize that since we're talking about the future, the future's already here. I mean, we're talking about vehicles today already being in that direction. So to think a couple of years down the road, they would push out a new formula that doesn't have this. There's something tells me, Ed, that uh, ovals, road courses, street courses, whatever it's going to end up being, and I think I have it on pretty good authority who the third auto manufacturer might be. Obviously not going to get into that right now, but uh, I think where this could be headed, it would certainly be something where come this 2021-2022 era where we should be having this new engine's debut, I'm more confident IndyCar, IndyCar is getting the message that it can't just be an all-motor formula. It's got to have some sort of hybrid support. And that's our closing thought. Thanks for sending in that question, Ed. And yeah, as more info becomes available, obviously I am looking forward to writing about it. All right, let's head off here to good old Long Beach. Can't wait to get there. Be seeing a lot of friends. and be recording some great podcasts too, hopefully, and just rocking and rolling at one of my favorite events of the year. All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is The Week in IndyCar presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.